Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, he is back today for third round on the podcast, and I assume this is not the last time we see him. It's Eastern Roman history, Daniel Maynard, and uh, welcome back. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. So this episode is a bit, little bit different because today is Drunk History Round 2. If you seen, haven't seen for the podcast since old times, you know that episode 14, I believe, would be for our first round where me and Eric Tiller, a good friend of mine, discuss history. And we will do the same in this time, just with different guests. And uh, I, I don't know if you are drinking, but at least I am. So we're going to see how it goes under the influence, which is yeah, so I have a glass of beer with me. So always I've come cheers. prepared. Salute, salute, my friend. So salute. basically, basically, we will be discussing general history, most mostly because his area is, of course, Latin, Roman, and Byzantine history. But I will try to do, you know, in that general history, and we will see where yeah. it goes. And uh, I don't think we discussed this before you were on. So how did you get into history yourself? Um, I think oh, just from an early age, I was enjoyed uh, seeing castles and museums. And my family's always been interested in history. And, uh, and it sort of runs in the family a little bit. Mm. Um, there's a strong interest and... And then a lot of my uh, pastimes involve sort of things from the past. So uh, I think there's always been a sort of an interest. And I like watching documentaries about things like ancient Egypt and uh, English history and so on. And then um, at school, I always really enjoyed history. And I think, and as time has gone on, it's the, the thing I've devoted myself to doing so yeah so, so for, for me to, i'm not i'm not studying history like you i'm just learning mm. from reading books like probably you will write eventually so you know, that's yeah. how i get my knowledge i'm not a professional historian by trade but for me it's about learning you know i've always been curious about how culture how we did we get our the culture that we have today different civilizations how yeah. did people react in the past times how did empires pro- collapse how did how did the romans become so big and i'm super and this is the word i'm used i'm used a lot fascinated by roman history and uh, you know antiquity and how did you know all these empires like become so powerful and how did it last for centuries like they did that's kind of how did we end up where we are today that's kind of my basic for how for how I got into history. So I think it's super interesting to learn how yeah. they end up where we are, you know. 
Well, I think it's ironic in a way that uh, for the Romans, uh, when they first, for several centuries, they were little more than a petty kingdom in Italy. And then they went on to um, conquer the Mediterranean and become one of the most influential civilizations in, uh, at the very least, European, if not world history. So... Mm. Um, some of these things are very humble beginnings. Yeah, and there is a um, another world where maybe Persian society would have been the great power that mm. everyone learns about and loves, but uh, it was not to be. And, and, yeah, and, and yeah, the strange reverses in history that sometimes arise. Speaking of the Persians, I kind of did a joke about how you know you know the Battle of Marathon, how it wasn't mm. about running. So I don't know, I was it about so you, yes. don't you think that it's one guy that shows up at the Battle of Marathon and believes? It's, so aren't we supposed to? Why, why aren't you? Why are you guys dressed up in armor? Why? Why, why aren't you running? <laughs> uh, said, uh, are, sorry, jogging yes. gears. Like, come on. Uh, well, the well, the run is just about. Marathon. It's not. It's a literal battle. It's mm-hmm. in front. Why did you yeah. not get this on the on the flyer? quite Uh, well that's the ironic thing I think that a battle from what over two millennia ago is commemorated even today by people making the same run in distance as the person that was sent to Athens to say that they won the battle Yeah. so it's uh, it's Baked yeah. into uh, European and world thought in some ways, whether they realize the significance or not. Speaking of battles, it's it's you know fascinating to me how weather has such a big, big saying in how a battle turned out. Like when Caesar invaded, try or tried to invade Britain, how how the weather mm. changed everything. How if it maybe wasn't misty, maybe Caesar would have been known to conquer Britain as well. Like he would probably conquer the continent if it wasn't for a battle, mm. for example. Or how Solomon the Magnificent, because the weather and you know it was raining and the the, and the ground was so muddy. They couldn't bring the cannons that they were supposed to have at the siege of Vienna in you know, this. I, th- I believe it was the 16th century. I, I don't have the date in my head. But you know, how, how weather can determine everything in a battle like that is super fascinating hmm. to me. Well, definitely the elements are uh, a very significant thing. And, and also um, taking advantage of the weather can be very so like uh, the emperor john the third he did quite a lot of his campaigning during the winter because it was very mm. unusual to launch winter campaigns because you you're talking Byzantine no, history or... uh yes this is yeah. uh 13th century so um john the third won an important victory right at the beginning of his reign against the latins in a uh, revolt uh, in his own uh, domain against him and he won because one of the reasons why he managed to win was his army managed to fall upon them 
with surprise because he marched his army in the winter against them and they weren't expecting that. Uh, So when he arrived, they were not prepared. Um, So, yeah, it's amazing how, well, maybe not amazing, but it's interesting how the um, elements can be used Mm. uh, and have played a role in history. Yeah, just think of how different history would be like if the brother wasn't like that on that day on that specific battle, or if when Caesar or Solomon tried to invade Vienna or Caesar tried to invade Britain. You know, that's 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 super again fascinating to me how <laughs> things turn out. You know, oh, definitely, definitely, it's um, and also some sometimes it's just very it's. Uh, simple things that can have major consequences mm. it's like uh well i always like to think of um claudius behind the the curtain that yeah. uh that as, was, as the sources say at least as the sources say that uh the praetorian guard found him and proclaimed mm. him emperor and uh, I, I think from speaking of Claudius, i think he's one of the i've kind of having love love relationship for Claudius because I feel like he's one of the most underrated emperors and I weep every time when I was thinking about the lost Etruscan history that we have because it, it got lost when Claudius passed hmm. Well I always think it's a great shame that we don't have anything that well, don't have any of the histories that he wrote because yeah. I'm sure they would have been quite interesting to read um, yeah, and he, he wasn't quite lucky in marriage either, though. No, he was really terrible at choosing wives. Uh, <laughs> Agrippina was a piece of work, to put it that way. Yes, and his uh, former wife, Marcelina, you have the um, the famous incident where she had a competition with rooms leading prostitutes yeah, to try yeah, and sleep with right. as many men as possible <laughs> uh, while Claudius was out of the city. Uh, <laughs> which, I don't know, I, I feel... You she, she must have some hubris to do that in the face of mm. Claudius. Um, I, mean, I mean, I feel kind of related... You know, why I kind of relate to Claudius and his kind of relatable character in history and you feel sympathy for him, in a sense... Hmm. I feel like quite a lot of the popular I think one of the reasons why we do think about Claudius as much as we do is because of the great success of the book and then later television series mm, I yeah. Claudius by Robert Graves which That's a 2002 series or Oh the series came out in the 1970s yeah. which was a big success and had was a star-studded cast with famous actors like I think uh, Derek seen Jacobi. A clip of that one. Um, yeah, the, I th- I think there are some about, but yeah, the series is great. It's just like uh, you've got. What did you What did you think about the portrayal of the of the characters? I had I seen I think I've only seen clips of it, but what did you think about the portrayal? I mean, it takes. Is, on... it, is that the one where Germanic is as well? Uh, he does appear in it. Um, I think, well, I mean, it takes on a very traditional reading of, um, Suetonius, really, where, 
and some other sources. And Robert Graves portray this, portrays events in a certain way. So Livia is responsible yeah. for massacring half yeah, of the Imperial right. family, right. which, right. which is sort of... Um, you'd have to believe every rumour about a Roman emperor yeah. of the Imperial family for that to happen. Because yeah. everyone says, like, uh, oh, yes, Augustus, who was in his late 70s by that point, it's like, oh, he was dying and he uh, wasn't very well. And then his mm. wife decided to poison him mm. uh, for his um, son. And uh, And I feel like well, not only could that be a rumour and quite a lot of people uh, in the first few emperors were rumoured to have been murdered by various people. Yeah. Um, I, I, what do you think about the portrayal of Claudius? Because I've kind of, I seen just a few clips of the series actually yesterday, as a matter of fact, because again, I was actually finishing the book about Germanicus and uh, you mentioned this series in the show and I found it on YouTube to see what it was like. Hmm. And I, I, th- I kind of thought it was kind of accurate the way they portrayed Claudius from the few clips I've seen of the series. Yeah. Well, Claudius, it's, it's... It does ignore some of Claudius's lesser qualities. So he, he was... Um, he really enjoyed... Uh, circus games and also he was responsible for trying people behind in sort of private courts uh which was uh well maybe um, i suppose it depends on how you interpret it but um suetonius does level several criticisms against claudius which are genuine criticisms and not. I just, just want to add that I haven't seen. I just seen a few clips, like three, four hmm. minutes clips of the series. But I, yeah, from uh, what I saw, it's kind of seemed like the way he's described by sources that he seems fairly accurate. I think. Yeah, or at least um, now Robert Graves saw it, and uh, but I think also Derek Jacobi does an incredible job of portraying. Claudius as outwardly to all the people he know he's this dumb idiot that hobbles around and can't stop twitching and then mm. you've got with relatable a, with a <laughs> yeah uh, and then and then uh and then the sort of behind closed doors yeah. he's this very intelligent a uh, very savvy person that manages mm. to um survive all of them I, yeah. in fact one of my favorite moments from the series is when he meets the senate for the first mm. time speaking as emperor and uh they level a, f- a bunch of charges against them and i uh i think i remember the the line is like uh so senator goes up to him and says uh, there are those that say you cannot hear properly you cannot see properly and you have no experience of government Oh. And then Claudius uh, replies, and besides, I am half-witted. <laughs> says, uh, and his, his reply is great. It's like, uh, it is true, I am hard of hearing, but it's not for want of listening. And mm. uh, it's like, for speaking, it is true, I have an impediment. 
But isn't what a man says more important than how long he takes to say it? Yeah, fair enough. And then it's like, uh, it is true I have no experience of government, but have you more? Mm. I at least have lived with the imperial family for however many years, and I've watched it working more closely than any of you. Mm. Does your experience measure up to that? (laughs) And then for... And uh, then for being half-witted, it's like, and for being half-witted. Yeah, uh, that's just that, that's a real good punchline. I've, as all I can say is I have survived with half my wits, whereas thousands have died with all of theirs intact. <laughs> Evidently, quality of wits is more important than quantity. Right. And it's, it's just, yeah, that's a great scene. I mean... Considering what what did you think? Have you seen a series on HBO called Britannia? I'm afraid not. No, because that's the kind of like about the invasion. Mm. I've seen just season one and parts of season two, mm. and it's about the invasion of Britain by Rome. It's fictional, of course. It's like entirely fictional. It has fictional gods. It's not don't take it as serious, but actually, it's kind of fascinating because in the first episode. Claudius appears as a as a character there. Mm. So, you, know, you know, since he was since he was he wasn't the one that invaded Britannia, but it was you know kind of he did go there for some time, and it was when mm. he came back to Rome. He sent in Paulus. Can't remember the chapter. I don't remember. I don't uh, know. He I don't sent, know he sent in the main force, and then he followed up. With yeah. some elephants in a secondary. Yeah, that's course. right. I, I, I thought it was actually decently portrayed in that one as well because you know it's it's a quite grotesque series because it focuses a lot on the tribes of UK at the time. It's again, it's like entirely fictional mm. series. Like, don't take any of this any of what happens in the series like literal. Like yeah. this, this totally happened. This hundred percent happened in the in uh, that's how they did it. Yeah, but it's it's still interesting and it's still it's a, a it's not an enjoyable series. It has two seasons on HBO, and if you do have HBO, take the take the time to watch it because I, I would recommend it. Actually, it's uh, what's the actor's name who portrayed? Uh, he he was in the office. He played uh, Garrett. Garrett is his name. Mackenzie something. Ooh, he portrays a druid in the series, right? And it's uh, it's quite good. I, I think it's more kind of like Game of Thrones ish series set in the Romans world, Roman world, actually. I think Game of Thrones has influenced many series mm. that want to. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it has the next definitely of years we have a lot of series attempting to emulate it. Yeah. You can definitely uh, see the influence of Game of Thrones in the series. Hmm. Well, speaking of fictional, have you have you seen the show Barbarians on Netflix? I did watch that. Yes, um, I, I actually loved it, and that's one of the reasons why I read wanted to read about your managers as well, because I'm, he's I'm going to appear in season two of hmm. the series, obviously, because you know he came in as a general in real life, and he took kind of took induce as chair of the business. Yes, I mean after various forms. What what did you think about barbarians? 
I did enjoy the series uh, on the whole. Um, in fact, uh, the ironically, uh, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest I thought was the most disappointing thing about mm. the series. Uh, yeah, which is a shame. And they also had this ridiculously long monologue going on throughout it, which sort of <laughs> was just words being strung together uh, for some of it. And if you haven't seen it, and uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how many spoilers you can have for a history series. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, there's there's this monologue going on through, it, and you have um, Arminius saying it. And is that is that the scene when it he's was just in the tent of... and he's kind of reveals the plan how he. Well, when, the, when suggestus and the virus is kind of in the same scene and he's kind of like suggestus is oh he's trying to betray you and he tells exactly what's going to happen and that's what happens yeah it was just it was really long and it was just after a bit it was just sort of words being strung together and i don't broke broke up the actual what was going on fair enough in the battle as well but Yes, um, but the rest of the series I thought was decent, and uh, I did enjoy watching it. So, I mean, um, what I do respect though is that they actually got the Romans speak Latin, which I honestly haven't seen before. Hmm. And they have the German speaking German, German, yeah. Which, yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's. <laughs> I mean, I'm not one of these people that goes, "Oh, yes, every culture should be speaking exactly yeah. the language they were." I mean, I do appreciate the fact that they do actually go the extra language. But yeah, I don't. I, yeah. um, I do think, yeah, if that's a creative choice, and yeah, more for them. Speaking um, of, speaking of again, do you do you have a favorite like fictional or or not fictional but historical portrayal of uh, any historical event? And if it isn't Braveheart. You're out of here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like, do you have another like, favorite portrayal well, of an historical I, I, I event give, from movies, I give Mel series? Gibson credit for making a <laughs> perfect one-dimensional version of Edward the <laughs> Yes. If you ever wanted a pure villain cartoon <laughs> character of Edward the First, look no further than Braveheart, because you will not be disappointed. A man that is quite willing to shoot his own men with you the, may never with take the, a with the, uh, with the uh, added benefit of hitting the Scots. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway. Uh, um, so my favourite portrayal of a historical character. That or was the question, like serious it? TV show, movie, um, whatever. I really like... Uh, if you've seen the series The Last Kingdom... I thought I the, the guy playing Alfred the Great was really good. Um, it was, yeah, was, I think you got across, I mean, I, I'm not, I've read up about Alfred the Great, but I wouldn't say I was, uh, it wasn't my specialty. Yeah. But from what I do know of Alfred, and I've read a bit of Asser's life of, of uh, Alfred, it's, um, it's, you've got this tough, uh, 
very savvy Christian monarch who trying to make the best out of his circumstances and a really great portrayal by uh, the actor who I can't remember his name, unfortunately, off the top of my head, but he did a really good job. That was, it's one of the, and his relationship with Uhtred is very good. Mm. I think also a good thing about The Last Kingdom and also um, its sister series, Sharp, which is based on the same books by Bernard Cornwell, is that it merges... Is it mainly historical fiction, or is it like... But he merges true events with okay, uh, yeah. fiction. So uh, the protagonist of Sharp, Richard Sharp, is a fictional character, but m- all of the situations he's in are true events. So mm. there was a battle of um, uh, Talavera, where the Duke of Wellington, um, well, becomes the Duke of Wellington and it's a major victory. And then he uses that scenario and a lot of the people that end up being involved in there end up in the book. Uh, And then he has this, he usually has a historical note at the end of his books explaining what uh, the history is and then what he changed in the book to fit in his fictional character. Richard Sharp. And sometimes he takes over roles that real people had or is alongside real people. And I think it's a great way of adding in enough fiction and drama to bring the event to life, but also a great way of grounding that in a historical context and the people from that event so you get people like the duke of wellington uh and people going down the line officers the men on the ground um and so on i just say for me it's i don't say barbarians is definitely in top five and but i've seen too much historical historical or drama sensations but Barbarians, mostly because I, I do praise the fact that they actually learn, the actors learn Latin. I don't know if you learn it, but like they speak Latin quite well, I think. For I don't speak Latin myself, and I, I can't say anything professional on the, on the case, but I think that Barbarians is one of those series that deserves high praise, I'm trying to at least be, I think, historic, as historically correct as it can Yet, I suppose. And I'm, I'm curious to see how they portray season two with Germanic, again, Germanicus arriving on the scene and how they portray the battles how, with Germanicus because they eventually, you know, capture Tusnelda and they do get her. And then and the Romans manage to capture her and suggest this into Roman territory, which is, which is you know, and I'm looking forward to see how, how does season two play out. Another series that comes to mind is uh, I, I just had it. I oh, <laughs> I can't believe I just got that brain uh, freeze here. But I'm not going to I'm not going to leave. This is and this is hundred percent satire. It's a comedy and it's satire. 
So don't take this as historical correct. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's Norseman. It's a Norwegian series that was filmed. Right. And, it, and it's about it's not try and it's not necessarily because I'm trying to be hundred percent historical correct and everything, but well, the thing is that ironically they are more historically correct than Vikings. The you know the famous yeah. HBO series, but it's satire satire on both modern day and the Viking age. Yeah, and how well, if you want Vikings to, behaved. If you want to take the piss out of something, you have to know what you're making fun of. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a comedy, and it's just kind of the, the thing is that the 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 film it's on Netflix. It's in the film both two twice actually. The film hmm. both in Norwegian originally because it was filmed for a local television channel and Netflix got interested in the series and they asked if it, I think they asked if they could film in English as well. Right. So uh, they could, you know, they film and the accent and everything they do is kind of on purpose. Hmm. So that's kind of one of, one of my favorite historical TV shows, I think. Hmm. And, and on third, I would say the great is by which is set in Russia again satire, satire. but again it's got me interested in Russian history, so it's it's gonna it's gonna be up there. It's gonna be up there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, but um, generally, and want want to know? Do you? As a historian yourself, do you read? Do you read other people's work, or do you just concentrate on primary sources, or do you mainly focus on secondary sources? No, sorry, primary first. Do you mainly focus on primary sources, or mainly secondary sources? Well, typically, um, it depends. Well, first, it depends on your approach. Are you visiting a historiographical problem which you think needs to be revised or are you looking at something which is derived from the primary sources uh in both cases you'll end up using both because the secondary sources are based or the the scholarship is based on primary sources of course so uh and if you're reviewing if you're revising scholarship then you need to go back to the sources they've based their assertions on and maybe even bring in new evidence which how often do you have to like dismiss that something is this is a definitely over exaggerated or this this probably did happen in another way that is described uh in terms uh when you come up against the primary source yeah um it depends on I think that there are two major factors, I think. is um, So what is it that you're reading? Are you reading a, something which is trying to be as level-headed as possible? True, they may get things wrong, uh, but they're trying their very best to try and tell you the truth. And also uh, who the person that is writing it says so like, who are who is writing this is this uh uh a, a grateful son talking about their father or daughter uh 
Uh, or is this someone writing sort of fairly ab- absent from their times and trying to write in an objective way? So what, what's the provenance of the source we're reading? And also um, cross-referencing the thing. So what does, if you can, what does one person say and what does another person say? And if they say two different things, why are they saying two different things? Is it because they've based their information on two different sources? Is it because they, uh, one is trying to obscure the facts and one isn't? I, I came across a quite good example in my own experience where looking at um, the grandfather and father of the emperor Nikiforis III, the guy I came Actually, on we made an episode last a while back in October. About. Yes, which... Uh, yeah, I should be uh, releasing something on my channel for him but soon. If you want to check it out, we made, I believe, fifty episode fifty something, hmm. like in October, which is one and a half hours. So if you want to know about Nicephorus the Third, go hmm. check. If you it want out. to hear me blithering on about <laughs> emperor who reigned for three years, then you know where to go. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, so. So there are two sources that give you some weighty information about his grandfather and father. The first one is Michael Italiates, and he says that his grandfather is called Nikiforos Botaniates. He's killed at the Battle of Clydeon after being thrown from his horse. And then there's another source, John Skylitzkis, who's writing about, who's writing under the reign of Alexius Comnenus. And he says his grandfather was Theophylact Botaniates, so it's a different, called something different. He was killed after the Battle of Clydeon in 1014, and he was killed in an ambush. And so the, the, some of the details are the same, so he did have a grandfather who was in this campaign. He was killed in the same year, but the specific details are completely different to the point where he's even, Italiates has even changed his name. And the only reason why he would do that is because he's writing for the emperor Nikiforos. And so why would he change it? Of course, Nikiforos wants to portray his ancestors as something different. He's a man that needs to establish his legitimacy and one of his big uh, things is that he's this very experienced soldier and governor and then if you have people looking back at his ancestors and finding out that his grandfather was killed in an ambush uh, by some Bulgars whereas you have his heroic grandfather killed in the major battle of their times by unfortunately being thrown from his horse. Right, he's going to go Yeah, it, it gives two different messages. Mm. Um, one is definitely trying to um, big up Nikiforos's ancestry and sort of mm. smooth over the uh, things he'd rather other people didn't know. And then John Skylitzis, who is using who um, summarized quite a lot of his older histories, 
is probably just reading straight from a history at the time what happened. And there is no, I need to change the events to make things more than there are because Nicky Forrest is long dead by that point. Yeah, so. Tacitus is a good example of that, I think, because he writes he writes several years after something happened, right? He writes mm. Tacitus, like, but again, I want to use Germanicus as an example here. If he writes about Germanicus, he's been dead for several years, maybe a hundred, few hundred years. I don't, I don't remember, don't have the days in my head right now, but like Tacitus writes. I think uh, ta- Tacitus his, is writing about um, 40, 50 years later. He's yeah. sort of writing at the end of the first few decades, few decades later. So for him, yeah. He he again he has to draw on other primary sources to get to find out what what happened. Mm. There was a murder by Tiberius. Was who should it portray as the villain in the story? So they're yeah. kind of similar, right? Tacitus is a, I think he's a good example of this. Yeah, I think that's also why he adds in rumors and things like that. So like it was rumored that yeah this happened because. Do you think it um, makes it difficult for historians such as yourself when people who write 50, 30 years after, again, terms of their third primary source, not as primary source, but third source? Which yeah, when they're, they're not even, they're not even sort of near the events that they're talking yeah. about. They're, they're an authority basing their sources, basing their work on sources who weren't even there also, mm. and so on. Like Dio, um, for example, who writes, writes about Cassius events. Dio. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, early 3rd century talking about, well, writing the entire history of Rome Yeah, in 80 books. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, and he's writing from a very... Yeah, he's definitely a secondary source on a lot of matters. But as you get further towards his time, he, the author, give, starts to enter into the account much more. And in fact, you get anecdotes of when the Emperor Commodus did this to Mr. Cassius Dio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is always quite fun. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's the same with Herodotus, isn't it? Like he wrote accounts from people. I think a generation after the Battle of Marathon, or and he, he wasn't yeah, he's, present he's, himself. He's right? writing he writes, after the first the um. Oh, it's off. It's after Xerxes's invasion. Mm. So it's after the end of the Persian invasions, um, in the fourth century BC, and he. 4th century? No. 5th century. Sorry, Sorry I'm used to yeah. AD. 5th uh, century? We're talking BC here, by the way. It's just, uh... Yeah, yeah. Hold on. 5th fifth, yeah, fifth century BC, so 400s BC. Um, and he, he's talking... He just... Uh, isn't he, like, basing his fact on a generation after? Well, the... he... Well, he is begins it, with by saying... He's inquiring into why the Persian War happened. So that, mm. that's his inquiry. And then it, he sort of goes into all sorts of um, histories and stories that he's collected on his travels. Because he's 
having to collect sources from all sorts of different mediums, sort of uh, inscriptions, oral histories, tablets. And I mean, Herodotus does get flack for being just sort of believing everything he's being told or just not being as objective as he could be. Right now. Yeah, we're talking about Herodotus. Hello? Hello? Are you there? Okay. And, uh, pause a little bit and uh, wait until we get back. I'm sorry about that. We just had to get a little break. And uh, I'm going to wait until we get back and we see what happens. Well, yeah, uh, sorry about that. We had to just take a little break in the recording and uh, we, we were talking about Herodotus. So back to Herodotus. Yes. Oh, yes, I was saying that Lots of people will sort of give him flack for not being as historically uh, rigorous mm. as perhaps people want him to be. But uh, in his defense, I, I would say that he has no standard to work off of. So it is just sort of a see what happens. And also the sources he's working with are very difficult as well in that they're all sorts of different mediums they're coming from different traditions and all histories and so on which are not necessarily reliable and if they are then you could perhaps talk to two different people saying the same story and there'll be different details and so on so i think some some credit should be given or more credit should be given to herodotus for actually being able to make a historical account of all of these different civilizations because he talks about Egypt and uh, Greece and Persia and uh, Lydia as well. So, um, and then sort of ne- the next generation of authors like uh, Thucydides and then Xenophon and yeah. Theopompus and so on refined the sort of art of history making. Um, but Herodotus uh, was a great pioneer of history. It's a difficult when you find two sources, two primary sources that you kind of contradict each other that this happened, no, this happened actually, mm. and it's a difficult to determine that no, I think actually this happened. Yeah, and uh, sometimes it's just because, especially if they're writing a lot later, it's because they've used different sources of information. Um. It's like I thought I found a very good example of this, which was very intriguing. And so there were two major Byzantine sources for the first Arab siege of Constantinople in the uh, for in the seventh century, and one of them mentions Greek fire being used, and the other doesn't. Uh, so. Th- the one that does is Theophanes, and the one that doesn't is Nikiforus the Patriarch. And they're writing in the late 8th, early 9th century. And so why are they different is because both of them are using two different sources of information. One of them is just using an older Byzantine source, which we don't have. But we can, because of the similarities between the two sources, 
roughly reconstruct from similarities between them what this earlier history looked like. And then the unique information in Theophanes must come from another source, which has been identified as Theophilus of Edessa, who is a Christian Syriac, a Syrian Christian uh, from the seventh century, who wrote a analytic, a list of animals. So in this year, this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Theophanes' account is made from those two sources, roughly. Um, whereas Nicephorus only has the one. So you have two accounts saying two different things. Yeah. And then, so they're having to interpret events from the sources they're using in the 8th and 9th centuries. And then we're having to interpret what their histories say in the 21st century. So you have, there's lots of layers to history, you know, like onions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, so, yeah, and sometimes finding new interpretations and revising our understanding of events is about looking deeply at the sources and then working out what they're saying. It's like later traditions why are they saying this what are, what is their information based on mm. um and then you can maybe go back up the tree and find out that actually all five of these sources are just basing their knowledge on this one source from much earlier uh and then you have to question whether that source is correct and then uh and oft and sometimes you find that that original source has been so overly interpreted that the over interpretations are sort of treated as the verbatim this happened where actually these are inferences based on sort of obscurities and innuendos and it's like hmm how reliably should we take this particular narrative i mean i think there's a great example about the battle of milvian bridge where Alan Cameron, who was a very eminent scholar, picked apart the battle. Uh, and there's several versions of what happened. Um, and the middle, of course, it doesn't may not know the middle in British, of course, the battle is with Constantine. Oh, that's another and one. Are, arguably, is it that, was it that battle you, you were referring to? Uh, the Frigidas is... Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, 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 heard, I heard wrong. Yeah. But the Milvian Bridge is a very a very good example of sort of... Sorry, have... I, I, I heard wrong. That, that's, that's my... That's oh, no, that, that's no problem. But the I, I think the same principle applies, that you have lots of different people saying different things about the same event uh, based on different sources. Yeah. Uh, so... Eusebius, he has an account of the battle, and one of his sources is Constantine himself. Mm. But he's writing much later. And in fact, his history of that same event is slightly different in his life of Constantine, which is written even later than his uh, ecclesiastical history. Mm. They have two versions from the same person, which is quite amusing. So you can see how Constantine's propaganda about the event developed. Uh, then you have a much earlier source in 
Lactantius. Um, but actually one of the most contemporary sources for the Battle of Milvian Bridge, apart from the actual Arch of Constantine itself, which was made soon after, and actually ha- depicts the Milvian Bridge and people being driven into it, um, is actually a panegyric made a year, a few months later in the following year. And this would have been someone who was asked or wrote a speech to be spoken aloud to Constantine. And he talks about the Milvian Bridge and what happened. Um, and you, and there's a lot of features about it that are present in that speech that are also present in other things like Tantius and Eusebius. But his version of events is different still. So sort of Maxentius rushes out to meet the um, Constantine in battle and Constantine has a big religious epiphany um, at uh, during the campaign, and there's uh, so th- these elements about the battle, and then afterwards it's like, ah, oh, yes, uh, the god I uh, championed helped me win. So it's like this common elements but then the details keep changing between from source to source so yeah uh, something i want to talk about as well when we talk about primary sources right now and uh, because i read gallic work not in unfortunately i don't speak latin like at all but uh, i've read the gallic work in the translated english version hmm. of course and uh it's, it's a great read, and I would recommend anyone to read it. But what should someone like who's not a historian like me and you want to read a primary source? Because I'm going to read very soon, which I'm really excited about, to read Anacomnianus Alexiad, for, for example. Hmm. To pick, pick an example of this, what, what would you say we should expect going into reading a primary source? for someone who has to read a translated version because we don't know the original language that it was written in. What would you mm. say? Do you, do you, would you give any advice to someone like us who has to read and um, translate a version because we don't know Latin, Greek, or you know whatever language we want to read the primary source in? Well, I think, I think a, great, a great benefit of a translation is that okay you're not reading it in the original language but you're getting something very close to i mean so long as the translation is good which i mean uh, not only talking about translation that we should know that it may not be the original words that anna or caesar wrote hmm. but like should be what should we think about concerning bias or if it's biased source what, what should we know going into reading a primary source, if you know yeah. what I mean? Um, I think it's important to, and often uh, tra- texts and translations have introductions which help set the scene in some way. So mm. who wrote it, what audience they're writing for, which I think um, is a good thing to note when you're going into a primary source like caesar he is he's you know he's biased portrays himself yeah it's like he's portraying himself as being objective as possible to give himself 
historical authority, but he's publicizing his campaigns. Why did he write himself in third person? Right? Why did yeah. he write the way he do? And you should look yeah. that up before going into, so you know what the channel to expect when you're going to read in the Gallic War for the first time, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, well, of course, you can just read it and for its own enjoyment, which I think is definitely a worthwhile thing in doing because uh, not only would these things have been read aloud, but uh, especially among high society, the, you would have people passing around histories and so on. It's like, oh, yes, please send me uh, your copy of uh, the Alexia because I want to read it. And I think you both audiences from then and now can enjoy the literature from those ages uh, just as much as something like Chaucer or something but uh, or Shakespeare but um, yeah I think uh, it's like who are they writing for it's like Caesar his works would have been read out in the middle of Rome with lots of crowds. So that Caesar's was... Gallic War was written obviously before his own political agenda. Like I'm not the villain mm. in the story. I'm doing this for the empire, for Rome. I'm doing this because you know, yeah. you know, to get political support and he sent it, the letters back to Rome. That's and we know that's yeah. why he wrote it, but like generally and I think there's a big reason in... why we think of we know so much about Caesar and his wars again in Gaul, Germany, and Britain. And and then we go, now tell me about Pompey's wars in the East. Mm. I, I feel like uh, it, it doesn't quite have the same ring yeah. to it in some ways. Um, I mean, you know that Pompey... But, but partially that, because yeah. Pompey didn't bother to write these things down for us and uh, and also have capture the popular imagination that Caesar's Gallic and then his civil wars did. Yeah. Um, it was propaganda that he wrote it for. I mean, for someone that, who is a history buff like me, like you mm. know he wrote it because he wanted to support the Senate, etc., etc. Well, I think... And, and, but, you know, for someone that might get into this for the first time, it might be, you know, it's Different. I, I don't know. It might be different, difficult for someone who reads, who it's not really want to want to read the Gallic War, who isn't really into that much into history for the first time. To well, I feel know, like for, if you're picking up Caesar's Gallic Wars, you must have some interest yeah, in history. You should, um, just as much as if you're picking up the latest book on uh, astronomy or something. Yeah. You must have some interest in that field. Fair enough, yeah. Um, or even fiction. It's like you, if you're someone who's very much into uh, horror stories, you're, and someone gives you, uh, you, you can expect that person to buy a horror book, mm. for instance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think so. Something like the Alexiad, I think, is is important. If you want to try and catch out the author and sort of look a bit deeper, is when you're reading, not just sort of think about what they're saying. Because a lot of these people do actually write some semblance of the truth. 
uh, but they like to obscure the things that they don't want to talk about. Yeah. But they have to talk about it because otherwise everyone would call them a liar. Yeah, what, so, fascinated, what fascinated me about the reading the Dalit War for the first time was uh, that Caesar actually acknowledged that he had defeats in when the sense of and I don't remember specifics in the in the head because I'm not a historian like you are, but like how he actually acknowledged that his armies did in fact have defeats and they did suffer hmm. tremendous loss sometimes. That yeah. he did write that down. He did actually notice this did did happen. He wasn't always victorious. Yeah, was well, is to give yourself credibility, um, and and sort of affirm your status yeah. as a, an objective author as much as you can be. Because also it depends <laughs> the style of history you're going for. So mm. Like if if you're reading. A classicizing history, like Anna Kamnemni wrote, uh, it has. There are certain rubrics that you need to write about. You need to have. You start off with your assertion of "I shall tell the truth" or as much as I am able to, mm. and then sort of you focus on your political and military events and uh, the big things that happen, um, and and then it would. It will sound very different when you read something like uh, a chronicle or something like that, which is far more like if you were to read Theophanes, it's just sort of date, list of emperor, a list of um, emperors and patriarchs, years of rule. And then in this year, this happened. Mm. Also in this year, this happened. So it's yeah. a very different sort of. Uh, genre of literature mm. um but something i think a great thing for like uh can you spot the biases of anna Kamnemni is as you're reading it it's like because she does mention things that she's definitely trying to avoid and sort of mm. obscure and it it can be a good way of sort of improving your ability not to just take things at face value but think more objectively about things is and especially can you when, identify when she is trying to obscure something yeah so like right the, at the beginning in the preface she says something like um it's like the history i'm writing is something which not many people will like to hear but as sort of i have to write it because it's the truth and then you go but why are people why would people uh, object to this version of Alexis Comnenus, mm. and then you look at the other history of the other contemporary history of Alexios's reign by John Zanaris, and there's a lot, there's a lot of criticism in that, which Anna's either left out or changed to make Alexios in a better light, and John covers the same, a lot of the same events in far less detail, but they're more, uh, not necessarily objective, but fairer in some ways. Yeah. He's less the Alexios, the definitely um, Homeric parallel. Uh, and then for John, he is just Alexios, um, the man who is the I mean, emperor. there is a difference, though, between we. 
when you he's your father and you you are just a historian that's oh, right about him. I think that's one of the great things about the Alexiad as well, in that quite a lot of the emotion that uh, Anna had goes into it. So like uh, whenever she talks about her husband who's dead by that point when she wrote or Alexios or her mother or um, George Paleologus, who she would have known quite well and who was a friend of hers, a uh, friend of her father's, you can, you can almost feel the, uh, you can almost conjure up in her mind her sort of being for, forcing back her tears as she writes this bit about her husband who's now dead and it's like I can't I can barely go I can only go on because uh, the history demands it but yeah it's just there's um I think you can get a lot out of the Alexiad as I said before just just as something uh to be read um as you well as a source of historical as information you shouldn't necessarily take it as a hundred percent this happened when you read read into it, mm. it's like um, there's a good comparison where uh, Alexios, when he takes seizes Constantinople from Nikephoros the Third, and then he loses control of his army, and as like uh, well, his army dispersed into the house houses of the people of Constantinople and started looting and uh, stealing things and started raping people and despoiling altars in churches, but they didn't kill anyone. And then John Zanaris uh, in his bit says, well, they did all of this and they started hauling senators off their horses and beating them to a pulp. Um, yeah. And the streets are running with blood and it's just like, hmm, <laughs> I feel like someone is not telling the truth here. Yeah. So, And... Uh... I don't definitely with today's age, and if you're reading a primary source, I would definitely, definitely before you go into the source, because that's what I did. I would use YouTube, Google, just see what you can find. How much should you expect to be true? What is biased when you read a primary source? Google, but mm. Google, what you what you can find about the book before you go in. What the scholar says. What does scholars say about this book? For example, the Alexian, what should they expect to be, or the Gallic War, what should they expect to be the truth? What should you expect to be, you know, biased? What should you expect? This, this Should you think this happen, actually happened? You know, the, if, you, if you're not a scholar, or if you do not study history, I would recommend you Google or use, use the value of the internet as a source for finding out some at least some hmm. information about the book before you go into the primary source if you're not a historian i think uh, and most primary sources have very good introductions and commentaries in them as well so there's definitely a resource to be used when you read something like that and also um like uh it, i've I think it's always a good idea to read not necessarily everything about a subject, but like if you're reading about Rome, find a book that covers, say, say, the late Roman Republic 
and then sort of you can go from there and dive into it deepest like maybe you'd like to read some of cicero's letters or or uh appian civil wars or something like that so uh have a bit more um because that's the thing you can read the primary sources but also scholars have ideas or maybe have read something that you haven't that can bring in more to the the uh historical uh debate so uh, would you agree that you should before drawing if you're not a scholar that you should research a little bit about the primary source before going into the primary source uh well as i as i say it depends what you're reading it for i suppose if you're just reading it because you want to read it then sure then go ahead uh if if you're reading it because you want to get perhaps a, a better understanding of the historical period you're interested in then it may be worth doing more research but i feel like that um comes naturally so if you're very interested in i don't know the emperor claudius uh i feel at least in my experience i naturally go oh what what how what was uh what were some of the finer details about claudius's invasion of britain and uh why did he bring those elephants with him and uh and uh stuff like that yeah i i 100% agree and uh i think it's a good point to make and but if you just want to read tacitus because it's tacitus then go ahead mm. I want to end before before we leave, and uh, I want to ask: Do you have any favorite alternative history that you know? There's a few YouTube mm. channels out there, as you know, that covers alternative history. Oh yeah. But uh, do you have any uh, favorite yourself that you think could have happened that uh, didn't happen eventually? That you think could have been the, the butterfly effect? To put it that, put it that yeah, way. Yeah. Um... I can't say anything specifically. I do remember at school I had uh, we were looking at the history of Russia and we we're think in one of our classes we were asked think about a event you've learned about this term and ask a what if question. And the what if question we asked was what happened if uh, the Tsar Alexander II hadn't been assassinated. Hmm. Um and I think that I think the the consensus I had then, which I still hold now, is that um, what if history, I think, is very useful for understanding the significance of an event. So, like, I uh, like we just just earlier, the weather could have changed everything in the yeah. battle. So, um, like, what what if Caesar hadn't had a storm when he crossed the Channel? Yeah. Um, Maybe his campaign in Britain would have been could could have had greater success, mm. or maybe Roman armies would have had, or uh, rulers would have had greater interest in going to Britain mm. because Caesar would have made the first impression for a lot of these people in that war. If, why would I go to Britain? It's so stormy. Yeah. Um, for what they didn't know is that for the Brits, it was just another average day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Um, so, yeah, I think what if history is very useful for considering the significance of events. I think, I do think that when I have seen some videos where it's just like, well, if if uh, Caesar hadn't coughed on the 1st of January, um, 44 <laughs> BC, then Claudius <laughs> would never have invaded Britain. <laughs> the Industrial Revolution would have never happened. And the entire uh, space program would have been run by the uh, Zulus. Yeah. And it's just like... Yeah, that you, wouldn't happen. How do you know? It's just like the 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 cause and effect what, what, of so what many of these events are so drastic yeah or just there's so many ripples that you can have but can Absolutely. you i would say that can you even be sure say the industrial revolution could you even be sure that that would happen in the same way that it did yeah um and I say that not to be sort of contrarian, but just mm. to be um, as sort of be as honest as possible. It's like, could you genuinely say that had Caesar not been assassinated, mm. would, I don't know, the Industrial Revolution not have happened yeah. for some reason? And uh... I was watching a video recently on the Ottoman Empire. What if the Ottoman Empire had invaded the South Americas or Americas? Yeah. And the, I'm not going to say the video's name. I don't want to go again. I, I, like, I enjoy the channel and uh, I got all the respect for, for the channel, but I'm, uh, so I'm not going to say the name. To, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the channel or, or anything. But... I don't but you know, uh, I actually read God of War, God's Shadow, not God of War. Sorry, that's a video game. But uh, yeah. but uh, God's Shadow by Alan Mikhail, who I was, who was a previous guest on the podcast, mm. and I highly recommend you should check it out. But Salim the Dream had uh, a plan to invade Mor- Morocco, mm. and that would have allowed him eventually to conquer the Americas, because if it, he would had, it? yeah, that would be because because according to Alan Mikhail, he he if he did conquer America, he would have had a, like you know the access to the Atlantic shore because that was what that the Ottomans lacked access to the Atlantic shore. They would have sailed around, how to sail around the Africa, African continent in order to get to, to America in the first place. As you know, so if but it, the plan invasion plan never happened. I don't exactly remember why, and and I'm a little drunk right now. I'm, that's maybe a reason why I don't remember <laughs> why. But uh, oh, it's been a while since I read the book as well. It was in October, but uh, so if. If Salim the Dream had in fact invaded Morocco, but this channel proclaims that if uh, Salim the Dream had, if or if the Ottomans would have invaded America, then we saw that. My response would be, would they? Exactly. How do you know? 
yeah, but like in general, they would have to get access to the Atlantic, and they claim that the Spanish would never have to exist. And I disagree because if if Salim had in fact invaded Morocco, he should have had access to Atlantic Sea. And he should have, if he wanted to, get a piece of the American continent. But but another another fact that I kind of find, and I, this is one of the jokes that I've been I've been working on, mm. is that, and I'm going to go a bit further in fact in time here. World War Two, okay, which you know Adolf Hitler is one of the most feared men at the time. Did you know that he could have had a very different name? Uh, I mean, history could have been very different if things had gone a little bit different in before he was born, because his father was born illegitimate. I don't remember the, the name of his father or his grandfather right now, but his uh, father was born illegitimate because his grandfather had an affair, I think. And I don't know if I remember. He was I had an affair with a maid or something. I, I don't remember the exact story. Mm-hmm. And Adolf, and his, Adolf Hitler's father was born. And he was punished, punished severely. That's a simple history reference, by the way. Mm-hmm. But uh, here, Adolf's grandfather, sorry, father, I think, was born illegitimate. And I think, if I remember history correctly, someone in comment might might correct me if if you care to comment. Uh, was that he was in Germany if you were born in illegitimate you were born Schützengruber I don't know if I said that name correctly Schützengruber or something I see so imagine the most fair man in his history if his grandfather had not made his child illegitimate by marrying his maid the most fair man in history would have been called Schützengruber Oh, that's what's out of his Schützengruber up to? Oh, he's about in Lithuania again. Oh, oh, that's Schützengruber. How is Schützengruber? It just it uh, wouldn't have the same ring to it. No, I think so. Uh, it's true. It's uh, you know, it's uh, funny how things uh, it's, things turn out that it's uh, Adolf Hitler, would, which eventually when he would become known as would could have been called. Uh, Indeed. It, it just wouldn't have the same ring to it, you know. Mm. He just wouldn't have been able to market himself uh, as uh, as well, I think. Mm. Well, I suppose you have ways of getting around it. Yeah, fair enough. But it's kind of funny to think that he could have had a very, very different name mm. as if he didn't... Uh, if things had gone a little bit differently. Mm. So, interesting to see what happens when someone makes that what-if scenario. Yeah. Adolf shit house shit and rubber. If any Germans listen to the podcast, let me know if I spell that correctly. I uh, I genuinely don't know if I said that correctly. My German is Nischstergut. So I think... Uh, yeah, if you're the landing more you want to say, I uh, 
Gentlemen, I know because I'm, I'm a little bit drunk. I'm very lying if I wasn't under influence right now. So, which is the part, which is what this episode is about, mm. to be fair. <laughs> not too much. Nothing, nothing much, nothing much, mm. but a little unpopular, unpopular. Hmm. Well, uh, hmm. well, I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, do you have anything any other alternative history you would like to see, perhaps? I think the trouble, one of the troubles I find with delving too much into the what if, the what ifs of history is that, um, well, the big trouble is none of it happened. Mm, yeah. So you are dealing with fantasy in a way. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and as I say, it's, there is there is merit to thinking about what if X happened in Y event. Um, yeah, it's just this little but, details that we've discussed. And but... I think uh, some, in fact, some, I do know that some authors have made what if scenarios and then set a fictional setting in that scenario so like um was it the man in the high castle i haven't yeah. seen the series but that is i, I, I enjoyed the man in the alternate, high castle. alternate reality and uh, where yeah. thing things were different um i think it can be quite fun in that regard because then you go it's sort of it's it's there is actually i'm of the ottomans again there yeah. is a I haven't read it, but there is an Ottomans. I don't, I don't know if it's a short story or if it's just like a normal novel. Mm. But what if the Ottomans had invaded Paris? When we find, which is a book out there. Goodness. Uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think that it that is a good context for uh, exploration yeah. of fiction. <laughs> But I think that uh, when you go sort of, well, this didn't happen, and then this would have caused this not to happen, mm. and then um, and then you treat it as sort of, it's all exactly the same, but also you've changed things as well, and then you get into you've or you've almost made a new history book by the mm. time it uh, it ends, and it's just sort of, but none of this actually happened so yeah so what um but uh yeah yes um i i do like to ask what if but um my interest definitely lies in the history and not yeah an alternate version absolutely and uh, i I like the history to say... itself is often so interesting anyway mm-hmm. absolutely uh, and sort of, there's always more things to explore. Sort of, uh, like the economic history of uh, things, social developments, cultural outputs, and uh, the actual literature you can read. So, like there are things from ancient Egypt from over four thousand three years ago. four thousand years ago, which we can still read because they've survived. Yeah. And you go, this was something that people back then would have been able to enjoy, mm. hopefully. And uh, and it's something that we can also experience now. And so you can... Um, 
I think that's something very significant. And then sort of you have your more traditional fields of like uh, military events, which um, I have a joke in Byzantine sphere because it's the one topic no one talks about. <laughs> Although that is changing more recently. That has a, been a revival in interest in Byzantine military history. But yes, for a very long time, it was just a subject no one did because it was not the in thing in the academy at the time. Yeah, uh, And then also political history, which um, the narrative of events, what happened, um, which is both fundamental and also I think is very interesting because as you analyze the sources and think about like uh, what those sources are based on, how maybe has something been overinterpreted or have we missed something or and then that can affect how you shape the narrative so um it's like a new a fairly recent book about um byzantium in the mid 10th to 11th century um brought brought in a lot of new research research and sort of a lot of old theories about the period to do with feudalization and the uh the wealthy landowners versus the emperor uh, was very was constructed on very thin evidence and sort of over interpretation. It was dismissed in a way. the sources uh, that that yeah, it's like more recent scholarship has just gone. No, hmm. this is nonsense yeah uh, and, and actually it does make sense in the context of the 20th century when a lot of these theories were being written yeah. under lots of especially in eastern countries like george ostrogorsky who's a very, very eminent scholar for his day um and still one of the big names of the field um was undoubtedly influenced by the fact that he was writing under the communist Yugoslav regime, which no matter how neutral he could be, he always had to write write to their tastes in a way. Yeah. And now and other scholars that go, well, actually, the evidence that this is based on doesn't mention half of this stuff. And and there's very simple explanations for why these things happen without sort of a grand theory of the the aristocracy of bigwig landowners oppressing the poor working class in Byzantium, which very strangely sounds like some other uh, set of ideals. Um, and then you go, well, it's because it didn't. And the evidence for it doesn't really suggest any of this. Yeah. It's just it's been interpreted that way. And then when you look at it, re-examine the evidence and reinterpret it, that changes the narrative, of course. Which is why I feel I feel like political history, although it does in for some scholars it gets written off sometimes as just being unimportant. Who cares about events? It by looking at the sources, the events change, of course. Because if something turns out to be complete nonsense then that's a whole chapter in the the standard history that needs to be rewritten 
Right. So, but yeah. Um, Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks so much for coming back. Uh, I don't think we have anything more to discuss at the moment right now. Yeah, I think yeah. now is a good time to wrap things up. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're always welcome back, of course, to the podcast. Should you have more, Thank you very much. You wish to express or say uh, uh, this. Not too much at the moment. I, I hope everyone has a happy new year this, since this is January. And uh, generally, and, I think too, being too late to say new happy new year is by one or two weeks into new year, January. Like, hmm. that's too late to say happy new year, two or three weeks. Probably. New year. Well, happy new year anyway. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Know. Happy new year. And uh, next week, Lindsay Powell will be on. And as we talked about in the early of the episode, we will be talking about Germanicus mm. and his life as a general and orator and much more. We will be talking about him in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Please consider rating us on iTunes. I assume that you have something you wish to promote, like your YouTube channel, etc. Yes, if uh, you're a fan of late Roman and Byzantine history and would like to delve a, deep, a bit deeper into the subject, then uh, check out Eastern Roman History, my YouTube channel, because there's all sorts on there, and I'm sure there's something you'll like. Please consider rating us five stars on Spotify on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode and if you liked the podcast, we need your rating. Thank you very much. And uh, if you if you don't like it, rate it one star. It's uh, I'm I'm not stopping you here. It's just uh, rate whatever whatever you feel like. You know, with the rate uh, you 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 can do it. Uh, whatever you want. And uh, we are on Instagram under what.h12. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube wherever you can find podcasts, basically. And as I said, next week, we will be joined by Lindsay Powell and talk about Germanicus. This has been drug history. I am a little bit drunk right now. I'm not going to lie. And uh, please like, share, and subscribe. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 